0: G'day, and welcome to Museo Punks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name is Suze Anderson.
1: And I'm Ed Rodley. And together, we'll be digging into another important issue driving conversation and practice in our field the question of how do we live in turbulent times?
0: Yeah, in recent months, we've noticed that whatever the ostensible topic of conversation, Ed and I kept returning to the questions. How do we communicate with one another in times of extreme partisanship? How do we create work that brings people together instead of separating them?
1: Yeah, whether it's the furor around what to do with Confederate monuments or board members with problematic businesses, ethically troublesome corporate sponsorship or government firings of museum directors for political reasons, 2019 was just fraught and 2020 shows no signs of being any less turbulent so how do museums and museum professionals navigate in these trying times?
0: So, this month, we're talking to two people who approach conflict, remembrance, and conscience in very different ways. Let's get into it.
1: Yes, indeed. <laughs> Dina Bailey is the Director of Methodology and Practice for the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. Before joining the coalition, Dina founded Mountaintop Vision, an independent consulting company that continues to work with organizations as they strengthen their commitment to being more inclusive. She's been the Director of Educational Strategies at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights and the Director of Museum Experiences at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. She is currently serving on the boards of the American Association for State and Local History and the American Alliance of Museums Education Committee. Dina, welcome to MuseoPunks, and thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Before we get into the conversation about living in turbulent times, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience and, and what the coalition does?
2: Of course. The International Coalition of Sites of Conscience, or the coalition, was started by Ruth Abram, who was formerly at the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. And she believed that museums and historic sites should also be places that address contemporary issues. While at the time, that was a little more controversial than it is today, she ended up gathering eight other representatives of institutions in 1999. Those institutions were from all around the world, And they were really focusing on how to connect the past to the present to the future, how to take places from memory to action, how to think about dialogue as central to um, this connection of past and present. And so the eight different institutions being, or nine with the Tenement Museum, being the District 6 Museum in South Africa, the Gulag Museum in Russia, the Liberation War Museum in Bangladesh, Maison de Esclaves in Senegal, the National Park Service Northeast Region in the United States, Memoria Abierta in Argentina, Terezín Memorial in Czech Republic, and the Workhouse in England. And so they all came wow. together with this joint understanding that they wanted to um, focus on issues both historically as well as contemporarily and that continues today we just had our 20th anniversary this year
0: congratulations thank you Dana. your title is director of methodology and practice which is amazing but what does it actually mean
2: So the coalition actually has three major divisions, and I will start with the one that is quote unquote furthest away from me and then work toward my division. So transitional justice is one of our divisions. They're really working internationally with communities who are currently in conflict or just post-conflict. And so that then means that they're working on oral histories, truth and reconciliation practices. The second division is global partnerships or global networks, mostly working outside of North America at this time, really focusing on membership, regional, thematic types of things. And then methodology and practice, which is the division that I belong to, is doing trainings, consultation, advisement, We're mostly in the United States, but we also do those trainings and consultations internationally as well. And so that's the reason that I talk about the other two first, because it is not out of the realm of possibility that I will be in Virginia one week and I will be in Rwanda the next week and potentially in Senegal the week after that.
1: So, um, Dina, one of the the coalition's main tenets is to prevent the erasure of painful history in order to ensure a more just and humane future. And uh, since you're mainly focused on the U.S. context, um, I want to ask you a question about these debates that we've been seeing happen in the United States over memorials all over the country, especially around sites and monuments connected to slavery and to the United States Civil War. Uh, I'm thinking specifically about a piece that was recently in the Times about the theft of a slave auction plaque in Charlottesville. What do you make of the of the sudden urgency around this issue? Like, why why now? It has been a history that has been with us since the 1860s, but suddenly it is all boiling up all over the country.
2: I would say that we go in cycles in the United States. And I will bring in someone who I worked with in when I was in Tanzania, And he said that the United States has skeletons that they bury superficially in the ground and just layer a light level of dirt over top. And then every time that there is some type of unrest or trauma, that wind blows the loose dirt away and we see all of our skeletons and people see them and recognize them and talk about them. And then we cover them over again with another light layer of dirt. And so it becomes this cycle. And that was very moving to me because I think it is true. While we are very focused on this right now, I think because of the social, political, economic times that we are in, I'm talking about class and race and gender. There's just a lot of upheaval and transition, I think, in our world and in the United States. For the U.S., it is something that we struggle with over and over and over.
0: Yeah, Dina, it's interesting hearing you you say that and talk about sort of these international contexts and then these U.S. contexts. And I know Ed and I are most familiar with the work the coalition does here in the U.S., but you do significant amounts of transitional justice work around the world. And as you said, including in many post-conflict areas, Local context is obviously hugely important to this work. Are there approaches and practices that work in all contexts to address the needs of communities in transition?
2: Yes, very much so. There are different contexts, there are different strategies, there are different underlying um, challenges and solutions. And so very much I agree with you that the local context is so very important But there are community threads, there are commonalities that are um, part of our approach as well. So currently we have over 300 different sites in 66 different countries, probably half of those sites or so are in the United States, just to give you more understanding about where we are. When we talk about some of the aspects of the local context versus the international commonalities, we find that things like communication and transparency, things like truth telling and activation, all of those are common values or common interests that people hold, um, sometimes common challenges, right? So What communication looks like or what power dynamics look like may be very different in South Carolina, as opposed to New York, as opposed to Montreal. But communication is always a part of the challenge for people and the potential solution, as an example. Um, Transparency, and so talking about people's different perspectives and empathy building is always a part of what we talk about. And I would say, personally, that race and ethnicity, above and beyond many other things, is also one of those commonalities that may look different as we move through the process, but is always a factor within which um, the, the local context rears itself.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about that? that idea that race and ethnicity are always going to be factors wherever you are. I think that's a really important thing for us to to understand a little better.
2: Just I think by human construction, we put people in categories, we put people in boxes. And uh, for those who want to talk about evolution and things like that, social hierarchies, we can look at that throughout time so that has been a constant however it looks in various communities and race and ethnicity are part of that hierarchy that categorization that we so often talk about or or rather don't talk about and so when we're thinking about uh, race and ethnicity race being a social construct of course but still very real and ethnicity sometimes being more subtle or blended or nuanced, perhaps, both of those areas come up as a very strong way in which people categorize others. And so who gets to be in the quote-unquote in-crowd and who is in the out-crowd, how we include people and how we exclude people. And you see that as we talk about anything from genocide to mass atrocity to apartheid to segregation that is so often happening um even when we from the outside may say everyone looks the same that is not true for the the local community the in group right and the external group if you want to put it that way
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense you know there was a recent piece in the guardian newspaper about the Albertina museum in dresden and their director was facing pretty vitriolic hate and aggression from the far right and began calling the perpetrators of this and then engaging them in conversations at the museum and including programming in response to certain complaints and a lot of the museum professionals that i follow on Twitter. Um, this raised alarm bells about normalising fascism and putting marginalised visitors to the museum at risk. But we can see this sort of polarisation and this anger certainly you know, in many, many places around the world at the moment. So when we're faced with emerging conflicts, conflicts with deep histories, conflicts where there might be a power imbalance... How do museums engage in ways that might be both responsive but also responsible?
2: I think that when I was reading that article, it was really interesting and important to me to think about the ways in which we build that transparency and those boundaries and the expectations. And so as we are talking about inclusion more and more in the field and and just more and more worldwide, we have to have an understanding within ourselves and as organizations about what inclusion means. And so there is the definition of course, for inclusion, but also there needs to be this practical application um, for your organization. And so I bring that up because I think that is about setting boundaries and expectations. Where are you willing to go and where are you not willing to go in order to be inclusive? Because the idea of inclusion has just been this very trendy concept and that is important and it is valid, but sometimes we use the word without recognizing what it actually means for us. And so- I think for um, her, as she's thinking about being inclusive, she's saying, this is as far as I'm willing to go while maintaining my organizational truths or while maintaining my um, set boundaries. And so while I understand my colleagues in the field having the alarm bells, I also think that there needs to be some recognition of going out into the wilderness, per se, um, in order to really get to this idea of in- genuine inclusion. And so you can do that. You can go out beyond your barriers um, if you recognize where your line is and you're able to stick with that.
1: Hmm. How many institutions do you think are able to articulate where their lines are?
2: That is a great question, and I think that is that's actually where we are in the field right now. That's where where organizations are, and I think they are being pushed by individuals and they are being pushed by community, which goes to the idea of Charlottesville and the activists who, um, who took the the slave auction block plaque. Right, often there are individuals and and community groups who are pushing our organizations to determine where their lines and their boundaries are.
1: Yeah, yeah. This kind of dialogue is going to be so difficult. And um, one of the reasons we were so desperate to speak with you for this episode is that dialogue is pretty much at the heart of the work that the coalition does. And I think it's something that the field struggles with. So Could you talk a little bit about what kind of training it takes to prepare someone to facilitate a dialogue on difficult or contested histories? Because I think a lot of the unwillingness in the field to engage with this is the fact that we don't have any background or skill in it. So what are those skills and where do you get that kind of training?
2: Yes, there are a number of different aspects to dialogue, I think. One of the first aspects is recognizing what dialogue is not. And so more often than not, people are debating with each other, whether they recognize that it's a debate or not, they're trying to win people over to their side. When the coalition talks about dialogue, we are talking about the sharing of experiences and information and assumptions for the purpose of individual and collective learning. And so, I always want to put that definition front and center because I think it changes the success measure for when people are talking to each other. It's a lot less pressure, perhaps, to say we're just sharing ideas and we're trying to learn from each other, rather than we all have to come to s- consensus or you have to un- change how you think about this thing. So. I think that is at the center of dialogue. When I think about different skills that come with facilitation, some of that has to do with what we've been talking about, being self-aware of your own biases, your own assumptions, your own stereotypes, in order to not be, um, and I'll use this word, not be triggered by what other people are saying. And I think that is very, very important. There's also a measure of empathy and patience and grace that I think really good facilitators have that they can Hmm. listen to others and they can extend them grace and understanding without feeling the need to agree with everything that is said. Uh, And so those probably three are at the heart for me of dialogue in terms of training and figuring out how to be a better facilitator there are a lot of articles there are a lot of um, different training things out there if you google them the um, International Coalition our organization has a number of ways organizations can currently do trainings we also are Um, experimenting with doing individual seating training so that you as an individual can come as well. But a lot of it, again, to me, in terms of free things that you can do, are just practicing being in spaces where not everyone shares the same opinion and practicing actively listening and talking through some of the discomfort that you may have or that others may have.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I've i been teaching a course on museum ethics and values but it's entirely about let's just try and understand complexities within the field and it's such a revelatory class to teach because it's just trying to come to understanding of different people's sense of the field and I find it such a beautiful class to teach simply because of that because I just get to hear so many different ways of understanding and thinking about this sector that is so familiar to me.
2: Yes. And I feel like when you recognize those perspectives and are curious and are appreciative of all of those different perspectives, then it's a lot easier to accept uh, perspectives and have dialogues in other areas of your life as well.
1: Hmm. So being good at it in any context helps you in all contexts? I believe so. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. Um, so we'll pop some links to uh, the Coalition's website and, and work in the show notes later on. Um, but I want to push a little bit more on this idea of um, what can museums be doing? So we, we talk a lot about museums being trusted institutions um, and and having a special place in society and civil society. But what can institutions like museums and historic sites do better to create environments of trust where there are histories of distrust, of victimization, of, of oppression? Like, what, are, what aren't we doing that we might be?
2: I will say that I am one of those who believes that museums are not neutral. And I believe that Mm -hmm. partly because human beings are not neutral. We all have biases, some more conscious than others. And so if we as human beings are creating exhibitions and making decisions, therefore our institutions are also set up for that. And so I believe that organizations need to, again, just be more aware of what they are backing and not even if it is by their silence and being aware of the promotions of your institution can really help with that trust building space also recognizing that things take time i often speak with individuals from organizations who say well we reached out to this group last month and they're not paying attention to us or even (laughs) you know, every six months we say something and and no one wants to work with us and just the patience and the consistent trust building that may be five years or 10 years in in the making, I think is very important. I also think that individuals and so our organizations sometimes believe themselves to be a more prominent participant in community than they actually are. And so sometimes when I talk about it, I say, you need to be at the table. You don't have to be at the head of the table, which really gets to this idea of our museums and historic sites being in the community and part of the community uh, and not always separate from and just telling everyone else what should be happening. So I think that that is really important. I also think that sometimes our organizations get, struggle with this idea of binary, right? Should we say that we should keep the monument? Should we say that we should remove the monument? And when I'm talking to a lot of museums, I try to encourage them not to fall within the binary system. It has to be this way or that way. But to find a third area that says, we believe in dialogue, we believe in uh, historical fact, we believe in um, ethics. And so we can say that we stand for those things while still encouraging the community to make some of these yes or no decisions. It doesn't have to be the museum itself. Yeah, that's really nice.
0: Dana, it really strikes me doing this work every day must be pretty exhausting. Um, can I ask what brought you to this work in the first place and also just how you sustain yourself day
2: to day?
1: Yeah, we love to hear how people got where they are.
2: Such a great question. Both both sides of that question. So I will start from the personal side, which is that I am biracial. My mother is white. and My father is black. And so... For me, in terms of my own personal self-discovery, I feel like I have always been in conversations of nuance and intersection and trying to see many different things from multiple perspectives. And that personal space for me led me to first become a high school English teacher and see that with my students and how I could help my students have broader perspectives as well. And then that led me into a master's in anthropology of development and social transformation. The development side is more um, Red Cross or uh, these civil society organizations. And the social transformation side ended up being more about genocide prevention, mass atrocity prevention, looking at some of the big moments of tension in our world. And I ended up writing my thesis about museums and how we can curate exhibitions to influence how people think about artifacts um, or art, therefore the people who created those objects and the places from which those objects come. So the ripple effect of all of that. But it has always been part of my, I would say, personal and professional practice to talk about this. It is very exhausting um, in many respects. And so as I think about self-care, I really try to balance what I'm reading for work and what I am consuming in personal spaces, what I'm listening to as professional development and what I'm listening to for leisure. And of course, those blend all end up blending together. It's not that easy, but thinking about when I talk to friends and family and make conscious decisions about what I'm talking about and when I'm just really trying to have fun and do things that are lighthearted and bring hope. Um, So I think that for me is really important, this finding of collective joy in balancing some of the collective discomfort that I stand in as well.
0: Yeah, I, I hope you don't have to facilitate every argument around the dinner table as well,
2: because I'm sure that, that would be a you know, professional risk, right? <laughs> Thanksgiving is definitely one of those moments where you make <laughs> active decisions. Oh,
0: I can imagine. Dana, this has been fascinating, and it's such important work that you're doing. If people want to find out more about you and your work or the work that the coalition does, where's the best place for them to go for more details?
2: I would say two different places. So of course we'll make sure that everyone has the link to the coalition's website and what we do in all of our complexity. And then, of course, I also have my own personal website for Mountaintop Vision as well, which is where I wrestle with and come up with a lot of the concepts that I am training and talking about as well. So those are the two different versions. I would also, of course, be happy to share with you some um, of the bibliographical information that I have in terms of publications that I have been a part of but also publications that I rely on as well
1: yeah that'd be great thank you
2: yeah that would be fantastic we've had a couple of really
0: great bibliographic uh, lists that we've been able to add to the website for various Mm -hmm. topics and I myself keep going back to them so I'm hoping uh, our listeners do
2: (laughs) as well Dina thank you so much it's been so
0: so great to talk to
2: you
1: thank you thank you
2: yes both of you as well I enjoy so much when I get to talk about my work but also I think how the work that we all are doing is really shaping the world so I appreciate the impact that you all are having and I'm so happy to be a small part of it
0: (laughs) Tim Phillips is the founder and CEO of Beyond Conflict, a non-profit organization that works with civic, non-profit and community leaders to address conflict and promote social change in the United States and abroad. Since 1992, Beyond Conflict has created powerful and innovative frameworks to open pathways for progress in peace talks, transitions to democracy, and national reconciliation in the aftermath of division and violence in over 75 countries. Tim led efforts to catalyse the peace and reconciliation processes in several nations, including Northern Ireland, El Salvador, and South South Africa. He has also advised the United Nations, the U.S. Department of State, and the Council of Europe. Tim, welcome to MuseoPunks.
3: Well, thank you, Suze, and uh, it's a privilege and honor to be on this uh, podcast. Yeah, thank you for joining us.
0: It's so great to have you here. Before we kick into the questions, you were just saying that you're also on a couple of museum boards. So you're thinking about museums uh, from quite an interesting perspective, I'm sure. Can you tell us a little bit about which boards you're on?
3: Sure. I'm on the board of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. I'm on the board of the Rose Art Museum at Brandeis. And I'm also on the board of the Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian Institution.
0: Oh, that's fantastic.
3: That's a fascinating mix. Yeah. And natural history. <laughs>
0: absolutely so tim you you know from us briefing you that we're, we're here really talking to today about how we live in turbulent times it's a thing that ed and i have been thinking about i'm sure many people within the museum sector are thinking about this at at present you've been doing hugely interesting work in this area you know since the 1990s and some of your early work i was reading about how The Project on Justice in Times of Transition, which I believe became Beyond Conflict, set out to help new leaders of post-communist Europe figure out how to deal with painful legacies of the past, which threatened to undermine their fledgling democracies. And in countries all over the world now, there are so many democratic institutions arguably under attack. So this work seems particularly resonant to us. How does the work that you do with Beyond Conflict help us understand the political moment in America right now where there is just so much turmoil, or at least there seems to be so much turmoil?
3: Um, thank you. It's, um, it's really such a, a key question. And as you mentioned, I spent most of the last 30 years working internationally. Um, Beyond Conflict has worked in nearly 75 countries around the world um, in the last two or three years, we have started focusing here in the United States um, because a lot of the same challenges, if not exactly the same challenge, but a lot of the same human challenges uh, that were involved in countries trying to end conflict, and dictatorship, deal with their past, build trust, um, there are elements of that here in this country, um, and, it's, and it's why we're starting to focus here.
1: Yeah, Tim, when you use the word conflict, I I immediately start thinking of armed conflict, but I'm sure you probably mean something a little bit more broad than that. Can you tell us a little bit about what encompasses conflict in your work?
3: Sure. Um, So, you know, when I think of what we did historically, we started um, at the end of the Cold War in Central and Eastern Europe, where there wasn't this sort of violent conflict when you think of in the Balkans or Northern Ireland or other countries. Mm -hmm. It was a transition away from dictatorship to democracy and you know, there was a lot of support going into those countries about you know, the rise of democracy again. How do you write constitutions? How do you uh, design democratic institutions? But what I was interested in, and I found that a lot of the dissidents who are now running these post-communist countries were also not only interested in, but really concerned about, is how do we as individuals and communities deal with the past? How do we deal with the legacy of repression? What it does to people as individuals, as families, um, when you sort of contract, keep your head down, um, become a victim, and become fearful and become uncertain uh, and not knowing who may betray you or not, and you know when that happened in the early '90s, that transition uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, as you know, it had a big impact that led to the negotiations in El Salvador or Nicaragua, or had a huge role in the ending of apartheid in South Africa, and then a year or two later, the peace process in Northern Ireland. So there you had less countries going sort of from structural dictatorship, more from ending long-standing conflict to peace. And in the place of Northern Ireland, El Salvador, and elements of the South African conflict, there was real violence, armed violence from the government or Sort of paramilitary guerrilla groups. Mm-hmm. So in that context, we were dealing with really armed violence. But you know, conflict um, has many dimensions. Um, it doesn't have to be violent. You know, you could have simmering conflict that leads to violence, which is what happened in Northern Ireland, uh, and uh, El Salvador, and many other countries. And I know a lot of people in the context of South Africa, we're saying that if they didn't find a way to negotiate a political settlement, it could lead to a more vicious, violent conflict.
1: Yikes. So Tim, beyond conflicts, um, methodology is grounded in two core principles, right? That people can learn from each other, and that people can change. Now, these sound like they are really pretty simple principles. What is it? about these ideas that make them so effective as a basis for transitional justice?
3: Well, um, it's really interesting um, what you say. I mean, when I go back to what Suze was saying in the beginning, we live in turbulent times. We certainly do. Yeah. Um, And when we started working in these countries um, in the 90s, as I mentioned, from Eastern Europe to Central America to Northern Ireland, they were certainly in very turbulent times. and it was very difficult for leaders and i don't mean just the elites i mean even grassroots and community leaders to imagine what change looked like how do we move forward how do we get out of this horrible predicament we're in to something not only more peaceful but where there's more inherent dignity and opportunity and equality and that we don't feel like it's an us versus them sort of mindset um and so what we sort of pioneered and now beyond conflict is this notion of shared human experience. And what I mean by that is bring it to the table, sort of like a big support group on wheels, people who had struggled with change. Um, leaders on both sides in South Africa, from the ANC and the De Klerk government, who grew up thinking, certainly in the ANC, that the system was wrong and had to change to people on the Africana side thinking, well, is the system that bad? (laughs) And so how do they navigate change, imagine change? And how does, for example, somebody in the ANC think about, okay, the white Afrikanas don't have a country to go back to, so they're here. They're the only white tribe of this continent. Um, So how do I imagine what a revolution, anti-apartheid struggle looks like where this community isn't leaving. And if you're on the other side, how do you imagine that the whole way you've thought about your country was corrupt? Um, And how do you embrace change where in the new constitution, when you say we are all created equal, you really mean it. And so hearing from others um, in these different countries, you know, that we've had to navigate profound change. We had to imagine that change was even possible, that we could form partnerships in a process of dialogue and engagement and get to know each other. Um, that's a big part of what we did. We would go into these places that were in the midst of incredible turbulence um, and try to showcase through the experience of others from other countries. Um, you know. I, I often thought that our role as an American was to set the table, you know, that we could help convene people, um, maybe even raise the money to bring people in, but who they needed to hear from were people like them, who struggled through change.
0: Yeah, Tim, it's so interesting hearing you talk about this. I'm I'm really struck by the phrasing that you used of inherent dignity. For me, that really resonates because I think it's something that, it's such an important concept, and yet it's not necessarily something I hear spoken about quite as often as some other issues related to, for instance, inclusion and those sorts of things. One of the things I've been really interested in looking at your research is Beyond Conflict has been conducting research into social belonging and identity. I'm sure dignity is a key factor in that. And one of the key research questions that your organization has been asking is what are the psycho, psychobiological and social effects of systemic exclusion and systemic belonging for individuals and communities? I'd love to hear what you've discovered so far in that research and how that kind of knowledge might be used by museums, for instance, who devote so much effort and thought to being more inclusive. But also, you know, clearly this is coming from deep experience yourself. So not just your organization's research, but what your own thinking is in that space.
3: Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's, those are really important topics and, and questions. Um, you know, um, early on, I learned from a really close friend from Guatemala when I started doing this work in 1991, 92. Um, and he's become a real mentor. And he said to me one day, literally driving from El Salvador to Guatemala, he said, you know that all conflict is driven by exclusion. And I remember thinking on this long journey, wow, that, that really resonates, certainly on an intellectual basis, a political basis. And then as I sort of you know, probed him more and how he came to see in his country, Guatemala, and what he saw next door in El Salvador when he was involved in the peace process, is what exclusion does to individuals and communities and how it can drive conflict, particularly in that setting, armed conflict. And you mentioned we started working the last decade with brain and behavioral science. Um, one of the earliest things I learned in the last decade is that we experience social rejection in the same part of the brain we experience physical pain. And that sort of learning, that awareness, Led me and my colleagues to start looking at brain and behavioral science because our approach is sort of theory agnostic. As I mentioned earlier, we started with the notion of shared human experience, which means we're going to find those individuals who've been through difficult change, who've lived through turbulent times, who struggled with change, but have found a way forward. And they sort of feel this moral authority, uh, responsibility, so to speak, to, to share it. Then Learning that in brain and behavioral science, there's so much profound knowledge of what it is to be human that not only sort of affirms what experience shows, but validates it in a way that is almost in some ways even more empowering. One of the biggest challenges we faced going into countries is a lot of people would think their situation was so unique that nobody could understand their suffering. Therefore, they couldn't learn from others. And what we found is we would spend a decade working in a country and taking people to other countries, bringing other leaders to their country, doing workshops, doing travel, you know, programming, when all of a sudden people would start to have these aha moments where they would say, now I get it. I get what I was learning from Mandela and DeClerc in South Africa for Northern Ireland. And it's now resonating with me. I can see that connection. But the thing about the brain is we are organically interested in ourselves. As one of my colleagues said who's a scientist, we have a biological necessity to feel understood. And so rather than trying to say to people, you can learn from the experience of another country, there's this really incredible open door in each and every one of us to learn about ourselves by learning about our brains. And, you know, some of the things that are absolutely clear is that We want to be understood, we want to feel safe, and so intimately tied to that is this notion of inherent dignity. Because when you feel like your dignity is respected, you're feeling like people understand who you are, who you are as you see yourself in the world. Um, That's just not just a sort of personal requirement, is it in a sense a deeply biological necessity. And it's not just, oh, I feel understood as they see me I feel understood because they see me now the way I see myself and that's really really powerful
0: yeah it's really powerful hearing you say that I'm, I'm struck also by you talking about sort of this sense that people feel very alone with their traumas and that and and, and the experiences that they've had a sense that No one else can understand this pain. You have a book uh, that Beyond Conflict has produced. We'll share a link with it in the show notes and in it you talk about how feelings of victimhood are extremely powerful and that both sides in a conflict and I would say probably all sides because it's not necessarily only two sides can feel victimized and It's a concept that really resonates with me when I think about a lot of the current discourse here in America around politics and elsewhere. So, you know, we've just been talking about inherent dignity and pain. How does a sense of victimization or polarization impact or shape conflict and then therefore conflict resolution?
3: Yeah, that is such a key question. Um, You know, the complexity of victimhood um, is real. I was just having a conversation with um, a board member. And, you know, um, w- there's a lot of research in science that shows that when you have two groups in conflict, the historically disempowered group has to be heard first. And a lot of this research was done in the Middle East between Israelis and Palestinians. And the reason why that's important is, um, is connected to the reason why I started looking at brain science 10 years ago um, I was teaching a class Jerry Adams from Northern Ireland who was one of the Sinn Féin IRA leaders came and a student asked the question how do you sit across the table from somebody you may have tried to kill or they may have tried to kill you and he paused and he said you know it's tough to make peace with a humiliated partner and There was a retired scientist, neuroscientist in the room, and he came up and he said, you know, there's a lot of brain science behind these themes of empathy and humiliation. And when I said, what do you mean brain science? He said something so powerful. He said, speaking as a scientist, we are not rational beings with emotions. It's just the opposite. We're emotionally based beings who can only um, feel safe and think rationally when we feel that our identities are understood by others. And it goes to what it is to be a victim. When you are a victim, you need to be understood. You need to be understood as you see yourself, either as an individual a family member or community. And your definition of victimhood may not necessarily reflect reality, but it's how you're processing it. And so to be seen and understood and heard, particularly first with a disembowered community is not just sort of culturally politically um necessary it is biologically necessary Mm -hmm. and and so that's really important to understand and that's why it's complex because one of the things i've seen in country after country after country is a competition of victimhood and it's very difficult for people to say well your victimhood is worse than mine or greater than mine and, and don't negate mine so We think in our work at Beyond Conflict, it's not to create a hierarchy of victimhoods, but to recognize the reality of victimhood more on its biological, physiological, psychological basis as a precursor to thinking about it in terms of dialogue and engagement. Because you can be the most privileged person and know what it feels like in certain conditions to feel like you're the victim. And allowing somebody to articulate that is the beginning of where they can contextualize and empathize with another. And how we navigate this is some of the stuff we're trying to research when it comes to belonging. I mean, you talk about institutions. We talk about inclusion. What is inclusion? It's a sense of belonging. What is belonging? It's a subjective felt experience. And these are the things that we need to navigate more broadly, but also when the museums and institutions uh, we work with. Yeah, that's fascinating.
1: I remember the first time I, I heard you use that uh, that quote about we're not rational beings with emotions, we're emotional beings who can sometimes be rational. That really just went right through me and stayed with me ever since then. Um, one of the th- reasons that we thought you'd be particularly uh, interesting guest to have on the show is the fact that you have this research unit within your organization um, the, the Beyond Conflict Innovation Lab, which aims to use neuroscience research, science-informed design and knowledge and education to, you say, revolutionize the field of peace building. Can you tell us a little bit more about the genesis of this initiative? Because it seems like an interesting road to go from uh, working in building to then doing neuroscience research on the basis of racism and, and things like that. Could you just tell us a little bit more about where it's going and what you hope to achieve with it?
3: Sure. Thank you, uh, Ed. So about uh, ten years ago, I was teaching this course with a colleague that I mentioned. When this uh, retired neuroscientist said what he said, um, and it just struck me then that that was so profoundly true that I needed to know more about it. And so we started meeting with scientists. Um, we're based in Boston, Cambridge, and so we had access to a lot of you know research labs and universities and. You know, I had one sort of aha moment after another where, you know, these particularly younger generation of scientists would say, first of all, we need to focus on how we think as humans and not what we think, because how we think is mostly unconscious. That we need to recognize that we think in groups, we think in these mental models of the world, and we think automatically. And that our brains evolved to be predictive and not reactive, right? And so, you know, learning just how our brains navigate the world constantly in milliseconds and asking the question, is it for me or not for me? Is it safe for me or not safe for me? And what's really also powerful is learning from scientists that, in a sense, the question our brain asks unconsciously in pretty much every waking moment, what do others think about me? And so... We started thinking, I started thinking of my colleagues, wait a minute, there are so many conflicts that remain intractable, so many peace agreements that are fragile. How do we learn from this to help challenges around conflict and reconciliation? And then one of the things we realized, you can't cherry pick from the academy because they're not incentivized that way. Hmm. So we build partnerships with MIT and other universities and other labs. And then used to have at the media lab at MIT, an annual conference the first one was on neuroscience and social conflict. The second one was on dehumanization. And in each uh, gathering, we'd bring world-class scientists together with leaders and practitioners and you know, other folks to have this sort of conversation about not only what is it to be human, but what is it to be dehumanized as an experience? And then from scientists to say, what do we know about how dehumanization gets processed in the brain? Yeah. Fascinating.
1: I remember when you you spoke at Museums in the Web last year about the neuroscience of racism, you said that you were surprised at how little research had been done on how the brain and how people learn to become racist. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what you found out during that process and, and how and when racist mindsets develop?
3: Sure. I, I First I'll say I'm not a particular expert in this, but I was... Um, at a conference in LA with our lead scientist, and a young African-American woman asked the question, are children born racist? And I turned to my colleague and he answered, he said, no, we have to teach children to be racist. So afterwards I asked him, I said, unpack that for me sort of as a a scientist. And um, what he ended up saying um, is, I mentioned earlier, we have our brains evolved to be predictive. So, when does that predictive mental model of the world come online in humans? Well, it turns out between four and eight is when young children start developing this sort of mental map of the world, in a sense, like an internal GPS system. You know, it's established that by six months, infants recognize difference around them, but they don't really make preferences on it. But between four and eight, infants, children start, you know, creating this mental model. tells them oh okay there are essentialist reasons why i'm in this category and others are in that situation um and a lot of this most of it happens unconsciously and it gets shaped by in a sense this sort of cognitive ecosystem as i call it we live in the home the school media um, their peers their family and others right and we found out that nobody had scientifically that we at least knew unpacked scientifically why do young children between four and eight create a racial preference for white over black not just among white children but also children of color and you know uh gordon parks the great photographer had done these really sort of Mm -hmm. uncomfortable iconic photos from the i think 50s of this young beautiful black child pointing at the white doll yeah But nobody had broken that down. And so for the last two years, we got funding, and it's been led by some researchers at NYU and Yale, is they've been investigating this. And not surprising, what the research is showing, more than siblings, more than peers at school, more than school, it's the parent. In other words, those young children don't know how to articulate to their parents at between four and eight you need to tell me how to navigate difference of race. Because we have this oncoming ecosystem of information and stereotype and structure coming at me and I don't know how to navigate it. They're not saying it explicitly, but that's essentially what's happening. And parents, A, don't know how to have conversations about race with their children, for the most part, who are white, and certainly mostly don't know that between four and eight is when this mental model of the world is being shaped. And so, We are now in the process with our team at NYU developing a parent's guide to test and pilot how white parents can have conversations with their children about race so that these sort of essentialist qualities don't come online. And what the scientists say, whether it's about uh, young girls in science and STEM or many other categories of navigating the world and difference and agency in the world, between four and eight is the crucial time to engage, and that's what that that project is about.
0: Tim, uh, if you ever need someone to uh, test any of that out, I have a two and a half year old, so uh, I, in a, in a couple of years, I would be a very happy pilot to uh, to, to help test some of that. One of the things that really strikes me when looking at your work and hearing you talk about your work is how much it seems that the leaders who are employed in your programs including the peace negotiations that you were referring to earlier have experienced those similar kinds of conflict or violence as those they're leading in discussion and you mentioned that part of that is actually key to sort of showing this shared human experience but Is it essential if, if we're dealing with challenging and embedded conflicts, is it essential that those who are leading or hosting the conversation have had these kinds of personal experiences with similar kinds of conflict or trauma, or is it possible to host these conversations, for instance, in a museum without having that immediate skin in the game?
3: Um, Yes, but Suze, before we jump to that, you don't have to wait to uh, get involved in our project at NYU. As a matter of fact, we have something called Panda, which is Princeton and NYU Discoveries uh, in Action. And it allows parents to go online with their children to actually be part of this project we're testing.
0: Hey! awesome. That's great. I will I will find a link or you can share a link with us and we'll put it in the show notes because I would love to be involved.
3: Yeah, we'll do that. (laughs) So um, so a couple of things. Um, And I'll get to the museum part because we we did do something a couple of years ago around that question. Um, So, you know, you can be as distinct as, you know, a top Afrikaner leader under apartheid and an African-American in Los Angeles, and you might wonder, what do they have in common? You know, what what do they share, right? And what I've found in actually bringing people together is the desire to feel understood, the desire to be not judged by what people see on the surface, um, to, to recognize what it feels like to feel fear and anxiety. Um, I mean, in, in some ways, those are really when you start stripping away what we share as humans are issues of social belonging, of, of feeling understood, of, of feeling safe in the world, um, of, of, you know, the need for people to recognize my dignity or, or what is the, the context of, of empathy. Um, and then you can get very specific. Again, I go back to my friend Rolf Meyer, who was the chief negotiator in the talks to end apartheid for the Africana government. And he said that in his sort of paradigm shift in the early 90s, he came to realize that the country and he had to move from a mindset of superiority versus inferiority between a mental model, which he didn't know to call at that time, is that we were superior, that we had the answers and that we were sort of destined to rule and therefore everybody else was not quite fully Human. They were inferior. And then what it took him, he could only describe it as a paradigm shift, but there was a cognitive shift, a scientist would say. There was an emotional shift where, you know, he was able to recognize that profound difference between superiority and inferiority and how that even played out in his mind. Scientists would say, yeah, you could call it on one level a paradigm shift, but the brain is malleable. Right, The brain is plastic. That experience uh, can change the way people think, where they can make profound transitions. And I think that's part of the, the, the shared experience uh, approach. And, and the other thing you both asked about museums, um, so we've been doing some work with museums, in particular with the Baltimore Museum of Art where we have been in science and our shared experience in over the last two or three years, helping them navigate how they become a truly more relevant, meaningful institution in Baltimore. Um, as, and as you know, they're really playing a leadership role in that. Um, but also working with teachers in the Baltimore public schools through the museum, where we've done workshops with the museum where we spent two days just talking about sort of brain basics, brain 101. And seeing these, these teachers who are mostly African-American and mostly you know, principals who've been decades in the school system, hearing for the first time that there's a biological necessity to feel understood was really cathartic for them. And through the museum in Baltimore, we're now looking at a pilot program with the Baltimore Public Schools and others to say, how do you bring an arts education and brain and behavioral science to beer where you can not only help the students, but help these teachers under profound stress and trauma to understand themselves and what their students and communities are going through and the connection to art? And then the other thing here with the MFA Boston three years ago, we brought the great Albie Sachs, who was one of the great ANC leaders, who was almost assassinated, to the MFA and had. Meetings with staff, board, community members about the nature of change and representation, um, and I remember you know one of the conversations we all had, and it's one of the things we're doing with the MFA in Boston, is how does an institution um, not only become more relevant and meaningful, particularly in this day and age, but what is the nature of change, and think of what we've been talking about what is the nature of change not just change in a conflict environment not just change in a country trying to come out of dictatorship or deal with its past and imagine what change could look like but it's the same problem that our institutions are also facing particularly civic institution how do we navigate change if we've been if our mental model as a major museum is education knowledge scholarship and curation and now we're looking to bring people in from the community who may not be sort of conventionally trained in the academy. What does that look like? What does it look like to embrace a different audience? What does it look like to truly do it in a way that's not check the box, but really meaningful? Those are not different challenges than any other leader or community that's trying to think about how do we go from where we are today to a new place? And the first thing is to recognize It's not easy, but it's possible. But to do it in conversation with others who have also struggled with change gives people power. It gives them inspiration and it gives them actually practical tools to think about that.
1: Yeah, even just in this conversation, like listening to you talk and knowing the kinds of conversations that you've had in your career, I feel much more hopeful about the struggles that. I'm facing in my work life, and probably most of our listeners are as well, uh, where all of the things that you've talked about are things that are pretty much on the mind of every single museum director and museum board in the country. Um, how do we get from where we are today and the legacy that we have inherited to a better place? How do we become relevant? How do we become inclusive? Like all All of this stuff, you have been right on the money. Tim, thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, If people want to find
3: out more about your work and Beyond Conflict, where can they go for
1: more details?
3: Uh, They can go to our website, which is www.beyondconflictint.org. And um, one thing that we're going to be releasing in the next few weeks is a major report on polarization in the United States, our polarized psychology, and uh, looking at, you know, why are we becoming so polarized in a more tribal sort of identity-based way. Um, And by looking at human psychology, we understand why that dynamic is accelerating, but also understanding that dynamic allows us to think about how to correct it.
1: Well, I'm certainly going to be downloading that as soon as it's available.
0: And we can share links to that once it comes up, uh, probably on uh, MuseoPunk's Twitter, if it's a little bit behind when we launch the show notes. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, thank you very both. It's been a privilege for for us.
0: Uh, Tim, it's been yeah, really you. fabulous to speak with you.
3: All right. Thank you both. All right. Take care.
0: Thank you, Dina and Tim, for sharing your work and perspectives with us. Coming to better approaches for dealing with turbulent times is such a crucial topic for museums, And really for all of us, I I think even Dina's reference to the Thanksgiving dinner table shows no one is immune to having to deal with conflict. And it's helpful to remember that there are people who are experts at this, that there are developed approaches and tactics that we can all draw upon, whether individually or in our institutions, to do this kind of work better.
1: Yeah, I, I love the way that grace and dignity came yeah. up in both of the conversations um, which is part of the reason why I love these conversations because you're never quite sure where they're gonna go uh, I'm, I'm also reminded that we ended last month's episode saying museums can and should do better and, and I think this month now we need to we need to change that a little bit to museums can and must do better yeah. we must do better
0: we must do better but it's a good thing that there are so many smart people like Dina like Tim working to make that happen and I count our listeners in that too, because everyone who's listening to this show is thinking about how they can improve museums and how they can improve their practice. Yeah. On that note, before we go, I have a quick question for our listeners. In the last couple of months, we've been contacted by a couple of people who've shared that they're using Museo punks episodes in teaching, which I find amazing um, if you're a professor who has assigned Museo Punks as a resource or a student who has encountered one or more of our episodes in a class or someone who's using this in a professional teaching context, maybe the equivalent of a book book club for uh for podcasts we would really love to know it helps us understand how what we're making is having an impact out in the world but it also gives us insight into the topics that resonate and the the kinds of ways that you are using what we're creating so you can tweet to us at museopunks uh or send us an email at punks p-u-n-k-s at museopunks.org
1: and thank you so as, as always, we've popped links to much of what we spoke about today in the show notes, which you can find at museopunks.org, along with transcripts of this and previous episodes.
0: And Museo Punks is presented every month by the American Alliance of Museums, whose conference is not too far away. Just a little FYI. I got my ticket. <laughs> and of course, you can subscribe anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Catch you next month.
1: Bye.